Exodus chapter 5, and here we are now at this kind of important time as Moses and Aaron are being brought before Pharaoh. God's called Moses to be the spokesman, to be the person that's going to lead Israel out. Of course, Moses, as you remember in chapters 3 and 4, our study last time we were together here on Wednesday, wasn't going so Moses was fighting it. Moses didn't want anything to do with it. He was coming up with excuse after excuse. But finally now, the Lord has moved him and he's brought Aaron, Moses' brother, in with him to kind of be that spokesperson and to be that help now for Moses. So it says here in chapter 5, verse 1, Afterward, Moses and Aaron went in and told Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. We missed that song. and we, we missed a prime opportunity. How many of you remember the song? Pharaoh, Pharaoh, oh, let my people go free. Anybody with me? You guys, how many? Yeah, you're just making me sweat it alone up here, aren't you? You all know the song. You're just going, just, you take it, Brent. We'll sit back and mock you later. I get it. I understand. This came to mind. I'm like, man, we should have sang that in worship. Maybe the closing song. Team, get ready. Brent, you get ready, okay? <laughs> closing song. But here they are. Let my, those of you that haven't been a part of church, you're all going, what a bunch of freaks there are around here. What are they talking about, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go? Okay, great song we used to sing. But here's, here's it. And, and so the word, the Lord, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. Verse 2, and Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice to let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, nor will I let Israel go, the nation Israel. So they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. So this is a great encounter now with Moses and Aaron coming before Pharaoh, the king of the leading world power, Egypt of this day. And they come before him, not so much for the request, but really a command from the Lord. This is what the Lord has instructed Moses and Aaron, and they're speaking verbatim what the Lord has told them to share, basically. And it's interesting because it would seem like Moses has a little bit of clout still there in Egypt. He, remember, I mean, he was brought up by the very princess of Egypt, raised by the Pharaoh's daughter, a previous uh, Pharaoh at this time. And so, no doubt, Moses is very familiar with the, the court here. He's very familiar with, with this Pharaoh, no doubt, would have been. I'm sure, growing up with him. And as Josephus records, Moses excelled as an officer in the Egyptian army. So Moses has kind of a lot of, of clout going for him here at this point. And he comes into Pharaoh. Uh, we see that Pharaoh kind of knows who they are. Uh, but what's really remarkable in all of this is to see the man that Moses has now become and as he comes into Pharaoh, we don't hear of, and maybe it's happening, and Moses just chooses not to record it, but we don't hear of a man standing there with knees knocking, sweating it out, panicked, fearful, worried. We see a man that comes in speaking boldly. This was a man that was not too long ago arguing with God over why he felt underqualified for such a job like this. But now we see a very different Moses. Where is this courage coming from? What, what gives now? with a guy like Moses. Well, remember what we saw in chapters three and four. Moses met with the living God. 
And now Moses is a changed man. Chapters 3 and 4 provided the, uh, this scene where Moses is being encouraged and, and has had this courage now built up in him and provided for him as Moses needed to stand before a king like Pharaoh. He's met the true and the living God, and God's revealed himself in a very personal way there at the burning bush. And Moses says, who should I say has sent me? I am who I am. And God just reveals in a very personal way the very name and the very existence of God before Moses. And Moses then encountered some amazing, powerful signs that the Lord was revealing to Moses to, again, um, validate that calling and commissioning of Moses as his leader for the people of Israel. Moses has seen the greatness of God unfolding now before him. That's why he can say in verse 3, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. The God of the Hebrews, the, the, the Israelite God, he's met with us. This isn't just something that we've kind of come up with ourselves. We've met personally with the living God. Remember the disciples as they were flailing, faltering along, right up, you could say, to the, to the resurrection of Jesus. Yet when Jesus ascended into heaven, these became mighty individuals that preached the gospel. They turned the world upside down. They were willing to die for their faith with great courage and strength. What brought about that kind of significant change? Well, no doubt you have to give credit to the, the Holy Spirit that was poured out upon them and that empowering. No doubt that was a significant work. But when the crowds in the book of Acts looked at the apostles, it says in Acts 4, verse 13, now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled and they realized that they had been with Jesus. That was it that really caused these disciples to, to stand apart from the rest, to be, to be men that were noticeably different, that there was something tangible about them that the crowds looked on and said, what gives these are untrained, uneducated men? What's going on with them? Where's this boldness coming from? Oh, these are people that have been with Jesus. And here's Moses now saying, we've met with the living God. We have spent time with God. See, the disciples, there wasn't their giftedness or training. It was the fact that they had been simply with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. They had seen, the, or seen Jesus. They'd encountered the one worth living for and worth dying for. When they saw the resurrected Jesus, they were filled with courage and renewed faith to live for the glory of God. Moses now is experiencing just that. He's coming in now, changed and different, ready to stand before Pharaoh. He's encountered God. If you want to do great things for God, then spend time encountering the greatness of God. If you want to do great things for God, spend time encountering the greatness of God. Have you spent time with him? Not just to get what you want, but just to discover how great he is. Have you taken time just to sit and be in the presence of the Lord and understand the great I am that is before you? Moses has seen that. So Moses comes in faith and strength as he tells Pharaoh to let God's people go to worship him now and to hold a feast to the Lord. Now, even though Moses has encountered the greatness of God, Pharaoh hasn't yet. And he replies 
simply there in verse two, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? Now remember, the, the Lord is this proper name of God, personal name of God, Yahweh. This is Yahweh, the, the I am, the, the eternally existent one. Who is the Lord? See, the Egyptians were a very polytheistic nation. They served many gods. They worshiped many gods. In fact, when we get into the plagues in the upcoming weeks, we're going to see that each of the plagues were a direct kind of hit and attack against the various gods that were being worshiped there in Egypt. It was a very affront to their gods. And so here they were a very multi-faceted worship of gods, polytheistic nation there in Egypt. So Pharaoh's going, well, we got a lot of gods. I know a lot of gods by name, but this name, Yahweh, I, I don't recognize that. Who is Yahweh? Who is this Yahweh? Now, Pharaoh himself was a, a ruler who took on the role of much more than just a king himself. It was believed that each Pharaoh was the child of the sun god. He was to be worshipped alongside their gods and their temples. He was of supreme authority sitting above the law. An inscription by a Pharaoh on an ancient Egyptian temple gives us the idea. It says, I am that which was and is and shall be, and no man has lifted my veil. No man has, no man has come in and, and, and seen me, fully understood me. And, and so here's these pharaohs sitting there themselves, not just worshiping many gods, but seeing themselves as a god. So now this is kind of, a, a, again, a direct affront to pharaoh here. We've met with the god of the Hebrews. And so Pharaoh is being challenged in these things. And yet this whole thinking of this, you know, multi-God, worshiping different gods simply shows the futility of their thinking. It says in, in Romans chapter 1, verse 12 to, uh, sorry, 1 verse 21 to 23. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed animals and creeping things. They professed to be wise, but they became foolish. They worshipped many different things. And everyone today must answer that question for themselves. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? It's a matter of life and death. Jesus posed that similar question to his disciples there in Matthew 16. Who do you say that I am? So, oh, well, you know, people are saying you're Elijah or, you know, the prophets to come and all these things. But Jesus says, no, who do you say that I am? Have you come to that right conclusion today? See, until we come to know and love the one true God the God of this word, we remain on the throne of our own lives. That gives us the illusion of power, but it's guaranteed to end in disaster. Here's Pharaoh sitting on the throne thinking, no, I'm the one that's in control. Who is this Lord? He better come and answer to me. Pharaoh's gonna be in for a big surprise here soon. We all have to come to that conclusion of saying, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord to you? Is he your, your savior, the one that you are living for and following, the one that you've committed your very life to? Is he just someone that you've kind of added to your life in hopes that it's going to bring profit to you? Are you serving God with ulterior motives or is he fully, truly 
the Lord of all and the Lord of your life? Who is the Lord? And Pharaoh is going to have that question answered for him in the next few chapters as God begins to reveal himself and his, and his power. And Pharaoh is going to be brought to his knees as he'll begin to see his weakness in, in God's power and might. So Moses is asking there in, in verse 3, let us go three days journey into the desert and sacrifice to the Lord our God. So the crest of Moses was not a big ask, was it? This was pretty insignificant. Just three days journey into the... He's not, he's not saying, Pharaoh, we out of here. And we ain't coming back. He's not saying that. He's just saying, three days journey, we're going to go and worship and sacrifice to our God. That's it. It's not a big ask. Ultimately, God's will was to bring them out for good and bring about their deliverance out of Egypt. But before being brought out, they're going to be brought in to experience that worship now of God and before God. It's also going to serve as an opportunity for Pharaoh to do the easy thing. Letting them go for three days is certainly better than having this entire nation and, and population of servants gone for good. But again, it's going to reveal the hardness of Pharaoh's heart in not not letting them go and do the easy thing. And it's going to bring the opportunity for God's might and power to be put on full display. Moses adds, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. Now, that's not something that God had, had instructed Moses to say when he stands before Pharaoh. God didn't say there would be consequences for not going, yet Moses kind of throws this in here. Perhaps it was to let Pharaoh know that Yahweh ultimately holds the power over life, that we answer to our Lord and God, not you, Pharaoh. He's the one that's in control. He's the one that holds the power over life. Pharaoh wanted to think that he was in control, but Moses lets them know that by restricting them from going just simply for three days, he might lose them altogether. Now, this did indeed turn out to be a bit of a prophetic statement being made as Pharaoh's heart is in that hardening process right now. And with every decision made against the Lord, the heat is going to be turned up and the people of Egypt are going to be the ones hit with pestilence and suffering. And they're going to pay the price now for Pharaoh's stubbornness. So these words almost have a bit of a prophetic element to it as he kind of lays out what's going to happen, not for them specifically as the Hebrew people, but also for Egypt and the people there. Well, look at... At verse 4, then the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people from the work? Get back to your labor. And Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are many now, and you make them rest from their labor. So the same day, Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their officers, saying, you shall no longer give the people straw to make brick as before. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. And you shall lay on them the quota of bricks which they made before. You shall not reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry out, saying, Let us go and sacrifice to our God. Let more work be laid on the men that they may labor in it, and let them not regard false words. Pharaoh's reply to the people it's just basically thinking like, you guys are just lazy. Or, or you guys just aren't really got enough to do. You guys are got a lot of free time, obviously. You're just 
idle time. That's why you want to get away. You got nothing better to do. Well, if there's work that you need to do, then I'll make sure you got work to do. And Pharaoh begins to come down hard and and very just uh, brutal and, and relentless against him. Pharaoh begins to turn up the heat and make things even more unbearable for them. Instead of the people, Pharaoh thinks, instead of you working for me, I'm going to come and work against you now, and I'm going to make things difficult and hard. So he says, you're going to keep making bricks, but we're not going to supply the straw any longer. Now, straw was used to kind of be that which would help hold the clay together and and, and form the bricks together. And so clay was super uh, helpful and and important with the mud mixture in, in making these bricks. And so Straw was provided for them, and now without straw being provided for them, they're going to have to go and get that themselves. It's going to be a little bit harder to make those bricks without that straw. And to make things worse, he says, you need to make the same amount of bricks each day that you've been previously making. Well, we've already provided this stuff for you. Surely this would be the last straw for the Israelites. How would you respond to something like that? How would you find it being at work where you are just barely making it, and now they go and take something away from you? I remember my first job. My first job, man, I, I had a dream job. I was like 12 years old, working at a driving range, driving the tractor. I don't know how they allowed a 12-year-old to get behind a tractor to drive out and pick up the golf balls, but that was my first job. I loved it. And so I'd be out there, you know, driving around, picking up the golf balls. But could you imagine they came and said, listen, all right, uh, we're going to change things up. You're not going to have the tractor any longer. You just need to go out there and pick up those golf balls by hand. And you need to have it done in the same amount of time as you would driving that tractor. I mean, with that tractor, you had like a huge kind of mechanism along that rollers that picked up the golf balls, dropped them in the basket. You just stop, pick up the baskets, drop them in the cleaning station. Very easy. Now to do that by hand and have to do it in the same amount of time, that's kind of the equivalent to what they're having to deal with here. Be very tough. Think about your situation if you were called upon to do something Having, having to do the same job you've been doing, but now to have something, uh, a key component of that taken away from you and still have the same demands put on you, that'd be very tough. So just as Pharaoh put the gears to the Israelites, and he says, work harder, so the, the world often sounds that same mantra. The world will often say, listen, if you're idle, you won't be productive or prosperous. You must work harder. And people fall prey to the mentality of of pushing and and sacrificing to get ahead. But the Lord says, you need to take time to be with me or else you will lose your head. You're not going to get ahead. How we often find ourselves in an endless circle of playing catch up because we failed to simply catch up with Jesus day by day in those quiet times and devotions with him. Does Jesus get pushed aside so we can try to be successful so we can just have more time to work harder and press in as the world says, that's what you need to do to be successful or to be happy. The Lord says, I need you to come away and be with me. Take some time to just be with me and to worship me. And that's what he's calling the Israelites to do right now. Before we move on to greater things, take time just to come alone and be with me. How important that is. I love the story of the family that was gathered together at Christmas time, and Grandpa was gifted a, a really nice watch, and he's showing it to all the family and really excited about it. But then he misplaced it; he couldn't find it, and the whole family's turning the house upside down trying to 
find this watch and nobody could. Well, they retired for the night and the next day, the young grandson got up and just did a little bit of time, he presented this watch to the grandpa. And the grandpa's like, how did you find my watch? Grandson said, I just got up before everybody else did and I listened for the ticking. And that's oftentimes what is so important in our lives to just get up before all the distractions are coming, before the demands of the day are really pressing in, to just get alone and be with Jesus and take time to come away to him and just hear from him, be strengthened in him. Pharaoh's putting heavy demands on. The world puts heavy demands on, which is all the more reason why we need to take time to prioritize and be with Jesus and get alone with him. Pharaoh's the one that says here in verse 9, oh, let them not regard false words at the end there. Let them not regard false words. It's, it's false words to think that you're going to be happy by advancing in career or riches or fame. Your, your joy comes from Jesus. Don't skip over him thinking that it'll be found elsewhere. Pharaoh was the one pushing false words here, not the Israelites. Well, reading on in verse 10, it says, and the taskmasters... Uh, of the people and their officers went out and spoke to the people saying thus says pharaoh i will not give you straw go get yourself straw where you can find it yet none of your work will be reduced so the people were scattered abroad throughout all the land of egypt to gather stubble instead of straw and the taskmasters forced them to hurry saying fulfill your work your daily quota as when there was straw also the officers of the children of israel whom pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them were beaten and were asked why have you not fulfilled your task in making brick both yesterday and today as before? So what's happening is the Egyptians had these taskmasters over the people of Israel, but Israel had these officers that were delegated. The taskmasters went to the officers, the Israelite people, and then the, the Israelite officers went to their people to give the direction and, and the different orders of the day that was kind of the chain of command that was set up so word is passed down that listen you're not going to be given now any more straw to make the bricks and they'd have to come up with it themselves and as production came to an obvious slowdown the taskmasters began to beat these hebrew officials and demand for that daily quota to continue to be met it seems so cruel and ruthless and we look at this account we go lord why I think as we go through Exodus, we see a number of great kind of spiritual applications for us. For us here, I think the, the subtle picture for us is just those demands of sin. This chapter teaches us that sin is a brutal taskmaster. We're all born in sin, and the, and the story of the Bible, especially as seen and relevant in the Exodus account, is that God's plan of salvation and, and, and deliverance, or his plan of salvation is to deliver us from the demands of sin. Exodus teaches that to be saved is to be rescued from slavery in order to serve the living God. And I think too often we think we can manage sin. We can we can, you know, deal with this. It's just a little sin. It's not a big thing. It's kind of a pet sin. And I don't know if I'm really ready to give it up altogether. I can 
manage this. It's not a big sin like I see some other people. And sometimes we think we can play around with sin, manage it, but sin is a brutal taskmaster. Its, it's purpose is to destroy your life. And the enemy would love to make you think that you can get away with this or you can handle this or that it's no big deal. But sin will begin to get a foothold and it'll begin to trip you up. That's why we need to walk in that deliverance of sin, that victory over sin that the Lord has provided for us through the cross and not think that we can get away with sin or play with sin. Sin is revealed to us here in this picture of what these Israelite servants are going through. It's brutal and it'll beat you up. Don't mess around with sin. So here they are making these bricks, having to fulfill the quota. Interesting archaeological note here. Naval in 1883 and Kyle in 1908 found at Pithom in Egypt, the lower courses of brick filled with good chopped straw. The middle courses with less straw, and that was stubble plucked up by the root. And the upper courses of brick were just a pure clay, having no straw whatever. What an amazing confirmation of the Exodus account seen in and through archaeology. Pretty amazing stuff there. So, Look at verse 15 with me here, chapter 5. So things are not going well for the Israelite people, especially these officers who are thinking, all right, we got a pretty good gig. We just get to pass on word what the, everybody else needs to do. But now they're getting beaten. It's not, it's not pleasant. So it says in verse 15, then the officers of the children of Israel came and cried out to Pharaoh saying, why are you dealing thus with your servants? There's no straw given to your servants. And they say to us, make brick. And indeed, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in your own people. It's within the Egyptian people. But he said again, Pharaoh says, you are idle, idle. Therefore, you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. You are only able to do that because you don't have enough work to do. That's kind of what Pharaoh's thinking. Verse 18, therefore, go now and work for no straw shall be given you yet you shall deliver the quota of bricks. And the officers of the children of Israel saw that they were in trouble after it was said, you shall not reduce any bricks from your daily quota. So the officers are legitimately confused as to why they're being beaten. They come before Pharaoh, they're like, what's going on? The, it's not on us, it's on you guys. You're the ones that are not supplying us with the right product now to get these bricks done. And you're still demanding the same quota. It's not our fault. You're not supplying what we need. They, they don't understand the, the big picture of what's really been going on. They blame Pharaoh's people for removing the straw and then saying, make the bricks for us. But now Pharaoh shares his heart and his reason. They're coming across as idle. Like they have all this extra time to go and just worship God. So they might as well just do more work then. These officers are now beginning to see kind of what's really been going on, that someone has gotten to Pharaoh first with this request to go and sacrifice to Yahweh. So now these officers are getting a little bothered and are thinking of Moses and Aaron now. See, the problem, first of all, is that these officers should have turned to God instead of to Pharaoh. They, they're upset at what's going on, but their immediate course of action is to go to Pharaoh. It's like having Satan lead someone into addiction 
And in order for that person to get help out of it, they go back to Satan and say, Satan, can you help me out of this addiction? Satan's like, going, no, I'm the one that puts you there. And I don't have any interest in taking you out of that. Or, or going to the things of the world to try to find help when it's the things of the world that have put you in that place to begin with. There's no help to be found in calling out to the very one that puts us in that bondage to begin with. No substance is going to deliver. It may bring temporary numbness from the pain, but it will not free you from that pain. How we need to call out to the Lord in our moments of weakness, hurt, and need, because it's the Lord who is our deliverer. It's the Lord that desires to rescue us and free us. Psalm 86, verse 6 to 7, give ear O Lord, to my prayer and attend to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I will call upon you for you will answer me. And then to make matters worse, not only have these officials gone to Pharaoh, but now they begin to attack their own leaders. Look at verse 20. Then as they came out from Pharaoh, they met Moses and Aaron who stood there to meet them. And they said to them, let the Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us abhorrent in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants to put a sword in their hand to kill us. So these officers look to put the blame on the shoulders of Moses and Aaron. They're the ones that have put them all in this predicament. They're the reason for the situation and the brutality they've been experiencing right now. They say, you've made us abhorrent before the Egyptians and before Pharaoh. That meant that you've caused us to just have a great stench before them. That's kind of what that means, abhorrent. They, we've, we've become repugnant now before Pharaoh and, and the Egyptians. And so they begin to blame and attack their leaders. And, and sadly, that's going to become quite a common theme in the book of Exodus. That, and, and, and it runs right through the whole Pentateuch, these first five books of the Old Testament. When things don't go well for Israel, they'll blame Moses and see that it's all his fault. And they begin to complain and, and criticize. Instead of just turning to the Lord. Now Moses is going to do the right thing. He's going to set that example as a good leadership. And he takes us all to God. Look at what we see in verse 20, 22. It says there, So Moses returned to the Lord. And said, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Why is it you have sent me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. Now notice though, first of all, Moses returned to the Lord. I like that. Sometimes we get a little distracted, don't we? Sometimes we get a little busy. And we need to get back in realignment with God. Sometimes we've, we've drifted. And we say, I need to return to the Lord. I need to get back in line with the Lord here. Moses returned to the Lord, the very place and person that he knows he's going to find help, comfort, and strength. And I don't blame Moses right now for having some questions. He, we finished the chapter with Moses kind of asking these questions. Because he's done everything that he's been asked to do. And yet things have gone from bad to worse. Think about how you'd feel if you're in Moses' sandals right now. If you go, Lord, I, I've obeyed you. I've done just what you wanted me to do. And now things are getting worse. Something's not adding up here. This isn't the way I would think that, you know, 
the, the fruit of obedience would be this. Now, he's beginning to wonder, where's God in all this? God doesn't seem to be holding up his end of the deal. Moses understandably asks, why trouble is coming upon their people? He's also contemplating his calling. Why have you sent me? That this is the result. Why, why me? I told you you should have gone with somebody else. I told you I wasn't the guy. Why have you sent me? And Moses is doubting God's actions. He says, neither have you delivered your people at all. Lord, the, the whole point was for me to go to Pharaoh, let my people go, sing a little song, and then we're out of here. But you haven't even delivered your people. I'm sure Moses is thinking, this, this would be a really good time, God, for you to do that. But in all fairness, God did reveal to Pharaoh or to Moses, or sorry, yeah, God did reveal to Moses that Pharaoh would not relent, that Moses would be stubborn, and that it would be an opportunity for God to do something even greater in revealing his power. It says in Exodus 3, we read that uh, just a few weeks ago, verse 19 and 20, but I'm sure that the king of Egypt will not let you go, no, not even by mighty hand. So, I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders, which I will do in its midst. And after that, he will let you go. God let Moses know. I can let you go right away. God's at work here in doing something, in, in confirming Pharaoh's position, but also giving opportunity for God's wonder and might to be put on full display. We can easily look at things happening around us that are less than ideal and wonder, God, why would you let this happen? But what we have to take into account is that God is sovereign. He's in control. Nothing surprises God. No curveballs are thrown on him where he's like, whoa, I didn't see that one coming. Whew, I gotta, okay, I gotta regroup now. I didn't expect that. Nothing takes God by surprise. He's in He's fully sovereign, meaning that he's in control of it all. And we have to understand that he knows all that's happening, and his ways are not our ways. He's going to operate in ways that will ultimately be for the glory of himself and for his power to be put on full display. That means when we see things happening that seem to run contrary to the expected outcome that we think should happen, we need to trust the Lord. We say, God, here's what makes sense to me, but I know you operate on a whole different level. And though this all seems to be very odd and, and difficult, and I don't know how good comes out of that, I need to trust you, God. Remember, Moses walked in obedience and did what the Lord told him to do. But this result, the people being beaten put into greater intensity of work, that was not the expected outcome. Does this mean that Moses was wrong or God wasn't good? No. It means God is at work in ways that Moses didn't understand fully. See, we're not guaranteed to have a comfortable, smooth ride here in this world. Again, Egypt 
It's that picture of the world. And we'll often go through pains and problems as a result of a fallen, sinful world. And yet, in God's goodness, he works through those things to bring about his purposes in our lives. I love James chapter 1, verse 2 to 5. My brother, count all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now, I don't particularly like trials and tribulations. I'm not getting up each morning saying, Lord, I think what I need is a few more trials today. I'm not asking for that. I'm not looking forward to them. But yet, I have to understand that I can rejoice in them. Why? Because God's in control and God uses those things that we don't always like. And he uses them to bring about his good, perfect purposes and plans into fruition in our lives. And he builds us up through them. Things aren't always going to unfold as we would like, but they'll always unfold as God has ordered. So when we come up against difficult things like this, trust him to do what is best. Look for ways to honor and glorify God in the midst of it. Ultimately, oftentimes the Lord sometimes brings difficulties so that he gets greater honor and glory through it in how he leads us. Remember, thirdly, that God will indeed see you through it. And watch expectantly for God's purposes to be fulfilled through it. Because he's at work. He's at work in, in all these things. We don't have to doubt, question. We look at our situation here. At this church, we go, Lord, we didn't expect to see that kind of offense put up in the parking lot and all these parking stalls blocked. We thought there'd be a few, but this has gone a little bit beyond, Lord. It's gone a little bit more than what was the expected outcome. And yet, we don't have to look at that and go, ah, where's God? God's not up there in heaven biting his nails going, oh, guys, I'm sorry. I didn't think they were going to do that much either. God's not fretting or freaking out over that. God's saying, hey, chill, everybody. I've got a perfect plan already in store for you. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work in you and through you in that process leading up to when you're going to see that come to fruition. We don't have to fear or worry or question or panic. We get to trust God and say, God, you're going to do something so wonderful through this that's going to put your glory and your power on display. Help us to just trust you and allow you to lead us through so that you get all the glory for it. And I believe he's going to do something wonderful. I hope he does it tomorrow, but I'm not going to freak out if he doesn't. Because I know his timing is perfect. And his timing is often way different than my timing. But yet I know his timing is always perfect. So I trust him. These things always become an occasion to see God do his work. And when it's something that goes beyond what we're able to manage, then all the more it becomes something that God does and has to do to where we say, God, all glory to you. We had nothing to do with this. You provided. You led. You guided. You did all the work. This is what, what God begins to reveal to Moses as we continue on here, chapter 6. Then the Lord said to Moses, now 
Notice this. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh. God's got it already ready to just unfold. Ready just to roll out. He's got it all worked out. He's got this situation all worked out. You should say, now, hey, guys, just wait. Now you'll see what I'm going to do. Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand, he will let them go. And with a strong hand, he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I have also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel, whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I have remembered my covenant. See, Moses thought that things had gone from bad to worse, didn't he? We've all looked at that and go, yep, that pretty much sums it up. But as far as God was concerned, everything was going perfectly according to plan. John Durham writes saying, what has appeared to Moses and the Israelites as a serious deterioration of an already bad situation has been instead a careful preparation for what is to come. Even Pharaoh's hard-hearted refusal was part of the plan of salvation. God was setting things up so that Pharaoh would not only let God's people go, but would help drive them out himself. The all-wise, all-powerful God had everything under control. He has everything under control. Now, what's interesting is that God here reminds Moses of who he is. What does he say to Moses? I am the Lord. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. This this should be all that we need to remind ourselves when we are up against a problem, a setback, a quandary, when we are wondering how we're going to get out of it, through it, we just need to remember, he's the Lord. He's the one. Like God's just saying, Moses, hey, you, remember me? I'm the Lord. Don't worry about what you see in front of you. I'm the Lord. Jeremiah chapter 32 verse 27 behold i'm the lord the god of all flesh is there anything too hard for me man that's how we need to look to the lord because when we just simply remember the lord oh how am i going to handle this oh he's the lord how am i going to get this oh he's the lord is there anything too hard for him no not a nothing absolutely nothing is too hard for the lord he's our help He's the one that we look to. He's the one that put our hope and trust in to where we don't have to fear or doubt. Now, God shows Moses here how he's revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but they were missing something. It's to Moses and the Israelites in this day that God is now known in a different way by the name Lord, I am, Yahweh, the one who will provide their deliverance and fulfill every province, uh, every um, promise. David Guzik says this, the patriarchs were privileged to know that, to know the God who made the covenant, but for them, the covenant was barely fulfilled. The patriarchs knew God as the maker of the covenant. Moses and the generation of the Exodus would know God as the one who fulfilled the covenant. The patriarchs knew the name Yahweh. It's used some 160 times in Genesis, but the great application of the name referred to God who kept and 
fulfilled the covenant. That's the God that they will see and know as God will indeed fulfill his promise in bringing them up out of Egypt and into their own land. Therefore, in verse six, say to the children of Israel, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will bring you into the land which I swore to give Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I'll give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. Again, the situation in Egypt looked very bleak from a human perspective, but now God wants the children of Israel to look beyond what they see and look to the one who is able. That is Yahweh. And here we have these glorious seven I will statements of God. They're the I wills of redemption. Here we see in verses six to eight, I will bring you out. I will rescue you from others. I will redeem you. I'll take you as my people. I will, I will be your God. I'll bring you into the land. I will give it to you as a heritage. Each, amazingly, as Kaiser writes, each of these verbs are in the Hebrew past. They're in that past tense, perfect tense, instead of the future tense. For so certain was God of their accomplishment that they were viewed as having been completed already. So this is something where God says, I, 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 I'll do this at a future time. No, it's as good as done. And notice God's not saying, hey, Moses, you know, you better really get it together because you got some work to do. You got some work to do in bringing these people out and, and into the promised land. It's going to be hard, but I know you can do it. That's not what God's saying. What is God saying? I will. And it's all framed again at the beginning of verse 6, in the middle, and at the end of verse 8. It's all framed in by the term, I am the Lord. Three times it's repeated there. I am the Lord, and I will do all that you need done. These are all statements that God says are as good as done, and none of these are being relied upon Israel to fulfill or accomplish. It's all framed in by that phrase, I am the Lord. He's the one that will accomplish it all, and he's done it all for us as well. The amazing thing is, again, these are all promises given to Israel, but we see wonderful spiritual application to each of these in what we have received in Jesus. When he says, I'll bring you out, well, we've been delivered and set free from the course of this world, as Ephesians 2 says. We're walking blindly according to the course of the world. We've been delivered out of that. I will rescue you from bondage. Well, we were in bondage to sin. And praise the Lord, the shackles have been broken. I will redeem you. We've been purchased by the precious blood of Jesus. I will take you as my people. We have received his adoption and become children of God. He says, I'll be your God. Through Jesus, we've been brought into a right standing now with our heavenly Father. The Spirit cries out, Abba, Father. I will bring you to the land. Jesus is preparing a place for us that where he is, we may be also. We have that hope of heaven and I will give it to you as a Heritage, 1 Peter 1, 4, says to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for you. Praise the Lord for what we have received in and through the work of Jesus Christ.
So, verse 9. Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel. But they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Go in, tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the children of Israel go out of his land. And Moses spoke before the Lord saying, Hey, the children of Israel have not heeded me. How then shall Pharaoh heed me? For I am of uncircumcised. Oh, uncircumcised. He's, he's digressing. He's going back to those same kinds of, uh, of um, excuses he had made earlier. But then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a command for the children of Israel and for Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. So when Moses shared this great news, all the Lord's going to do, the children of Israel didn't listen. It was almost like they, they couldn't, they were so broken. And, and you can kind of sympathize with them because they've been so hurt and broken over the heavy and cruel bondage that they've been under. It's almost like they're hearing these things of Moses and it's like, it's too good to be true. I just can't fathom that because we've been so oppressed and hurt. You may encounter that with someone you're sharing the gospel with as they come under the weight of their sin and it becomes hard for them to hear the truths of what Jesus has done for them. Maybe as you've witnessed and shared with people, they just almost tune out because they feel like that's too good to be true. Or, or that can't apply to me and, and my condition or situation. Sometimes people are so mentally and emotionally crushed that they struggle to get it but how we need to share that and demonstrate that and, and point them to the one that's able to deliver them and set them completely free from everything that's gripped them and weighed them down. So Moses is told to go speak to Pharaoh again, but Moses, again, feeling less than adequate. If the people of Israel won't respond to what he has to say, why would Pharaoh listen to him? Now again, to be uncircumcised the lips, he's going to, he says that here in verse 12, and then he'll say it at the end of the chapter in verse 30. It doesn't speak of some medical condition that Moses has that's physically hard. He's just showing his lack of confidence in his own speaking ability. He just feels he's, he's unable to really be that spokesman of God. But God commands him and Pharaoh to bring the people of Israel out of Egypt. This isn't an option. It's not a, it's not a, a, a question I'm asking, Pharaoh. It's a, it's a command. Something you need to do. Now, interestingly now in verse 14, all the way down to verse 27, we're injected with a genealogy of Moses and Aaron. Uh, J.D. Hannah said this. He said, this passage puzzles some readers because it seems to be an unnatural insertion into the narrative. However, the genealogy was placed here to identify Moses and Aaron more precisely because of the prominent position they were assuming as representatives of the people before the Egyptian state. Verses 26 to 27, which kind of close out that passage, tie that unit with verse 13 and explain why the genealogy is given. It was the same Moses and Aaron, it says, in verse 26 and in verse 27, and they were the ones who spoke to Pharaoh. So it's just kind of tying in their genealogy. These are the ones that are called of God. They may feel inept, inadequate, but God's called them. And so it's, it's confirmed there in that genealogy. Let's, let's jump over to verse 28 here just for time's sake. Verse 28 says, And it came to pass on the day the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt 
that the Lord spoke to Moses saying, I'm the Lord, speak to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said before the Lord, behold, I am of uncircumcised lips and how shall Pharaoh heed me? How is Pharaoh gonna listen to me? Moses is still struggling with how he's going to convince Pharaoh, but this isn't Moses' problem. Moses doesn't have to worry about how he's going to convince Pharaoh. The answer's already actually been given right there multiple times in this chapter and given right there in verse 29. What does it say? I am the Lord. That's all Moses needs to know. That's all Moses needs to put his trust in. He doesn't need to worry about how he's going to convince Pharaoh. He just needs to understand who is going before him, who is calling him. It's the Lord. It's the one that is able. It's the one that's able to accomplish all that he says he's going to do. And Moses needs to simply put his faith not in his ability, but in God's power and might. He's all we need, and he is enough for anything and everything that we are going through. May we not diminish the power and might of God. May we, like we started off saying this evening, worship team, you guys can come up. May we take time each day to sit in the presence of God, just to know Him and to know His greatness. That when challenges come, or difficulties come throughout the day. We don't have to fear or worry. We know the very one who's able. He would want us to know, I am the Lord. Whatever thing you're going through, am I unable to take care of that, to lead you through? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? That's the great promise we have. God is the one that will do it. I will. I will seven times, he says. I will be the one that does it. Let's look to him in faith, trust, and walk in that boldness and faith in what God wants to do in us and through us, no matter what lies before us. May we handle it with confidence, not in us, but in confidence in the Lord. All right, let's stand. And Lord, we just come before you here tonight. And we thank you for this example of, of what Moses and the Israelite people had to go through. And it was tough. It was hard. Unbearable, I'm sure, for many. And yet, through it, God, you're, you're still allowing your purposes to unfold. God, may we not question or doubt when things happen that are challenging to us. May we just understand that, God, you're going to do something so wonderful through it. And it's oftentimes through the, the difficulties that your power is on greater display. May we not fret or worry or, or wonder how. May we just simply look to the one who is able. You are the Lord. We proclaim that here tonight. You're the Lord of our lives. You love us. God, nothing is too hard for you. You will see us through. May we hold on to you and trust you in everything we deal with. We ask in your name, Jesus. Amen.